Today we're in Luke chapter 12, just these first three verses. Let me read them for us. This is what God's word says. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, that is Jesus, began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have turned our eyes to your word, Lord, turn our eyes to Christ. Help us to see the gospel. Help us to hear you speaking to us. We ask that your spirit would be the one teaching us and impressing these truths upon us. We desire to hear your voice, not the voice of a mere preacher or mere man. Would you encourage us and strengthen us as your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In times such as these, as our society is growing increasingly opposed to biblical truths, it's tempting to believe that the greatest potential threat to the church is something external, some outside force that could infringe upon the well-being of God's church. And no doubt these external dangers are indeed troubling. Uh, Worldly influence and ideology, uh, persecution, government intrusion. But as concerning as they may be, if you study the New Testament carefully, you'll notice that the greatest threats to the church have always been internal. The dangers that arise from within the body of Christ. For instance, we find a very heavy concentration in Paul's letters of the warning of divisions and factions forming within the church. And it's not just in one letter, but you see Paul mentioning this all throughout 1 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, and more. So the greatest threats have always originated from within. And of them all, perhaps the most dangerous internal threat is hypocrisy in the congregation. Now, why is it the most dangerous? Because this particular threat is not only destructive, but it is very quiet and subtle in how it creeps into the church and spreads all throughout. See, it's important to consider the context here in how Jesus brings up this issue of hypocrisy. The last couple of weeks, we saw Jesus at the end of chapter 11, that long section, denouncing the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the lawyers. They were just filled with nothing, ironically. They were filled with emptiness, empty, lifeless religiosity. And here at the beginning of chapter 12, it says that meanwhile, as so many thousands of the crowds had gathered together to the point where they were trampling over each other, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of hypocrisy. Now, there are two key observations here. First is to notice how this warning is not directed to the general populace of the vast crowd of people. But there is a clear contrast between the outside world of the thousands of people gathered out there 
versus the much smaller circle of those who are Jesus' disciples to whom he directs this word of caution. This tells us that the scope of Jesus' concern is within the community of his people. It is a danger internal to his church. Secondly, if you really keep in mind the context, it's quite remarkable that this was the most urgent concern on Jesus' mind. Because we left off at the end of chapter 11 with the Pharisees and scribes and lawyers uh, fuming with hostility at Jesus' words and verse 54 described their belligerence in almost serpent-like fashion that they were determined to hunt Jesus down as though they were bloodthirsty predators, which they, of course, eventually proved themselves to be by scheming to successfully crucify him on the cross. And so as chapter 12 opens up, Jesus was in a state of increasing danger by the hands of these religious huntsmen. His life was in perilous condition. And yet, despite all this, Jesus was apparently far more concerned about the spiritual peril of hypocrisy creeping into the church. This is how much he cares and loves his church. That her spiritual protection is always on the forefront of his mind. But not only that, this also shows just how deadly hypocrisy really is. It is spiritual cancer in the body of Christ. And just like what makes cancer so lethal, hypocrisy often goes undetected until its late stages when it has already wreaked havoc within the body. Hence, Jesus describes hypocrisy with the imagery of leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees, he calls it. That's a very vivid metaphor because leaven, if you don't know, it's a fermenting agent, like yeast, that's used in the making of bread. The leaven of yeast is what causes the dough to rise and get nice and fluffy to become the soft brioche bread or whatever bread you like uh, that you enjoy. And without leaven, if there's no leaven, you would just end up with the very stale flat bread that tastes like cardboard. It's kind of like the ones that we take for communion. Uh, I'm not trying to throw shade. It's actually, we, we do purchase unleavened bread on purpose. Uh, part of it is because it helps with the expiration date. Uh, but also it's because, you know, in the Passover, it's unleavened bread is what was used. It's intentional. Because in the Passover, back in Exodus, when Israel was practically thrust out of Egypt, uh, that shows just the mighty hand of God. This was not a, a nail-biter of a battle between God and Pharaoh. This, this was a decisive victory. They were thrust out of Egypt. They were begging Israel to leave. And because of that, there was no time to bake nice, fluffy bread because you need to give time for yeast to spread and leaven the whole lump of dough. And so to commemorate the swiftness and the potency of God's saving power to, to deliver Israel out of Egypt, God instructed them to celebrate the Passover with unleavened bread. And of course, when we take communion, we're commemorating the ultimate Passover of Christ as our Passover lamb who has absolutely crushed the power of sin and condemnation and freed us from its dominion by his death on the cross. But I bring up this point about unleavened bread in the Passover because it helps us to understand the nature of leaven and how the process works. It is slow and it gradually spreads over a long period of time. It's something that happens under the hood, so to speak. It's not loud. 
nor is it easily noticeable. Yeast doesn't announce that it's crawling this way and then that way, nor does it declare that its end goal is to leaven the entire batch of dough. No, it's a very stealthy process. It goes unnoticed. But eventually, leaven spreads and overtakes and completely redefines the environment into which it is introduced, which in the case of bread making, the whole lump of dough is leavened. That's how Jesus describes the danger of hypocrisy. It's quiet, it's subtle, and left unchecked, it can overtake and define the entire atmosphere of the church. And that's why one could argue it is the greatest of all internal threats to the body of Christ because it is the silent killer. It can infest and pervade the church and engulf the spirit of the congregation under its deadly influence, all the while never making a sound and flying under the radar. Now, how is that the case? How can something so deadly go so quietly? Well, it's important to understand what exactly hypocrisy is at its basic core. Now, I think hypocrisy is one of those words where we can probably identify examples of it better than we can articulate the actual definition of it. But here's a simple way to define it, okay? Hypocrisy is putting up a front. It's pretending to be someone that you're actually not. Now, the word hypocrite was originally a theater term because a hypocrite was a play actor in ancient times. Uh, and back then, they would wear masks to act out a part for a play. And probably they had uh, multiple masks because maybe they were going through uh, some inflation and economic you know, downturn, and they had to cut some of the uh, other actors. And so one guy had to play 10 parts, so he had 10 masks. And he would put the different masks on and play the whole uh, thing by himself. But you see, when we call someone a hypocrite today, what we're really saying is that they're putting on a mask, a fake exterior. Who the person appears to be on the outside doesn't match who the person really is on the inside. Because what you see on the outside is just a public persona and a front that they've put on to appear a certain way, but that's not who they truly are underneath the veneer. And so that's the basic core definition of hypocrisy. Now, here's the thing. When we hear the word hypocrisy or hypocrites in the context of the church as it pertains to a Christian, my guess is that many of us probably think of the most blatant, and flagrant form of it because it's the most easy to identify it's the kind of hypocrisy in which someone who claims to be a christian is living a secret double life of worldly living and i'm not talking about the daily struggle against sin as a christian with all the ups and downs and the victories and the failures i'm talking about someone who is living two lives and they look like two completely different people. They come to church on Sunday and they act like a Christian, sing the songs and say amen. But Monday through Saturday, they're in headlong pursuit of sinful pleasures, waltzing their way along a carnal lifestyle in action or in attitude. This is what we might call blatant, uh, obvious hypocrisy. It's so obvious that even a non-Christian can tell. That how such a person acts on a Sunday is all just religious pretense. And don't get me wrong, this type of hypocrisy is destructive 
because it kills the testimony of the church. You know, one of my closest friends whom I knew since fifth grade, uh, maybe it was sixth grade, maybe we're not that close because uh, I can't remember when we first met, but we were childhood friends. Uh, we met at church. We grew up in the church together, but in early high school, he walked away from the church altogether because he was disgusted by the hypocrisy of all these college students who were serving as youth leaders. Because on Sundays, they were singing the worship songs, raising their hands, closing their eyes, oh, praise Jesus, serving on the praise team, teaching the youth kids about God. But it turns out that all, all the other days of the week, when they were back at their college campuses, they were partying like pagans, getting drunk left and right, and doing all the things that were cool in the eyes of the world. And when my friend found out, he was so stumbled in his conscience by these youth leaders that he once looked up to, that he walked away from the church and never looked back. Because it turned out that all the sincerity and passion that he saw in them, it was a bunch of religious play acting. And so the testimony of the gospel was tarnished. It was made to look like a big sham. And it destroyed a young soul. And you know, it's been almost 20 years since then. And I can tell that to this day, the scars are still there, keeping him from seeing the undefiled truth of the gospel. And you see this kind of overt hypocrisy in a lot of places. And I remember when I was in college, there was a church that many of the students uh, who attended campus ministries, many of the students had attended. And my goodness, this church, it was known, it was known as the hangover church. That was its claim to fame, that a large number of its members would party their brains out on Saturday night, get drunk like sailors, come to church Sunday morning to do the whole worship thing, and then to cap it off for lunch fellowship after service, they would all go and get a nice hot cup of soup because they were so hungover. Rinse and repeat every week. Now look, this is laughable hypocrisy. Okay, there's such an insulting inconsistency that it makes a mockery of Christ. And the unbelieving world laughs at the dead religion that is so obviously apparent. And such blatant hypocrites would do well to take heed to Jesus' words in verse 2. And nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And hypocrisy is plain foolish because God sees it all. You can't fool God. And even if you succeed in fooling other people, it will only be temporary. Because in due time, God will reveal everything on the last day. Every hidden darkness will be put on bright display for all to see. And every secret whisper will be amplified to a public shout for all to hear. And so God calls everyone to humble themselves before him in honest confession and repentance because Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so look, all this, this is a clear warning for this obvious conspicuous manifestation of hypocrisy. Having said all that, 
There is another kind of hypocrisy that is not so obvious. And I think we need to consider. It's the kind that in some ways is most like leaven because this is the kind that is quiet. It's subtle, not really noticeable. And it can unknowingly seep into the life of the church. And perhaps one reason why it is so subtle and not readily noticed is because the particular environment in which it best thrives is in churches that are zealous in their ambition to be holy and faithful to God and biblical. Churches that emphasize devotion to God, biblical convictions, being a true Christian, not a phony one. Now look, these are all good things. That's exactly what Scripture calls us to. And these are unquestionably the things that we want to pursue as a church. But as we learned last week, spiritual dangers can originate from good intentions. You see, the kind of blatant, conspicuous hypocrisy of living the dual life of unrestrained worldliness, this might be best described as the hiding of a secret darkness within. And so the outside doesn't correspond to the inside because the inside is actually uh, very dark and carnal. But the kind of inconspicuous, more subtle hypocrisy that I'm talking about now is not so much the hiding of internal sinful darkness, although that too, but perhaps it could be described as the feigning of external bright light. Pretending that the light you are putting forth is brighter than it actually is. That is to say, it is putting up a front that you are more holy than you actually are. And they're really the same thing. They're just two sides of the same coin. It is just as much hypocrisy to feel the need to present ourselves as more put together and more godly than we really are as it is to live a secret double life of carnality and open rebellion. Because the basic definition of hypocrisy holds true in either case, that the inside doesn't match the outside. But you can see how and why this subtle kind finds its breeding ground, especially within the walls of a church that stresses holiness and biblical fidelity. Again, don't get me wrong. Those are good things and they're the right objectives. It's what God commands of his people. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we're not only to hear what the Bible says, but to actually do it. But here's the issue. In the midst of a world opposed to biblical values, and in the midst of many churches that have diluted the Bible's message and allowed sin to fester and are perfectly fine with fostering phony Christians, it is very tempting to want to overcorrect by preaching the demands of holiness hard and making that the main and constant message from the pulpit. Because you want to make it crystal clear. This is the true cost of discipleship. This is biblical Christianity. It's not a passive, casual Sunday affair, but Jesus demands your utmost devotion and obedience and holiness your whole life. And again, that's all true. Amen. But first of all, 
If all these commands of Scripture, the imperatives of the gospel, are thundered down from the pulpit and take full center stage to the neglect of the blessings and promises of the gospel, all the indicatives of what God has done and completely fulfilled for the Christian, then you inevitably end up turning the gospel upside down on its head. And the totality of the Christian life and the whole tenor of the church becomes almost exclusively about everything God requires of us, all the things that we must give to God, and it fails to capture the gospel spirit of Romans 11.35. Who, this rhetorical question, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him, are all things. If you lose sight of this paradigm of the gospel, then as we saw last week, it quickly degenerates into Pharisaic legalism, where we must constantly earn and maintain God's favor by how well we obey. And secondly, and very importantly, if the primary focus on the imperatives it is on the imperatives of the gospel, which as we discussed, leads to the mindset of graceless obedience, then the church's welfare is now being measured by the spiritual performance of the members. Especially because such kinds of holiness churches are fueled by reaction and comparison. Because remember, there are all those unfaithful, unbiblical churches. Are, they're all out there, but we're a holy, faithful, biblical church. We have true, faithful Christians here. And you can tell because we know our Bibles, unlike others who don't know their Bibles that well. We're devoted to the church, unlike all those other noncommittal, consumeristic Christians out there. We take sin seriously and we put it to death, unlike all those other people who do not take sanctification seriously. And even if those things are technically true, the constant emphasis on this superlative level of faithfulness becomes the very identity of the church. How holy and faithful we are to God and to His Word. How spiritual and devoted we are. Are, and before you know it, the leaven of the Pharisees spreads and overtakes the environment. Because now, the culture and atmosphere of the church is now this spiritual pressure of needing to keep up with the Joneses, as it were. But if you're always making such lofty claims of your own spiritual excellence and aptitude... Guess what? The church will inevitably end up preaching better than they can actually afford to live. You will assert yourself as more holy than you truly are. Because no one can keep up with those spiritual Joneses. And the psychological effect that this has on a congregation is that everyone is constantly pummeled by a sense of defeat on a weekly basis because... 
Who can live up to such high octane spiritual performance week in, week out, 24-7? Everyone knows deep down that they don't meet up to this pinnacle of spiritual virtue and godliness. But because the message is that we are such a holy church filled with such splendid Christians, you begin to think that maybe everyone else has got it together. Because what is being implied is here in this church, we only have the spiritually strong. You're not cut out for Christ if your faith is weak or if you're struggling. And so with all that, you begin to think, is it just me then? Maybe it's just me. Who doesn't feel so spiritually strong all the time? Maybe something's wrong with me because, I mean, the pastor is always up there preaching his face off about how if we say we're Christians, we better be living holy lives that are unstained by sin in order to glorify God in all this lofty language. And it's not that that pursuit is wrong per se, but it's that the preacher makes it sound really easy to accomplish, judging by how much he's foaming at the mouth about it all the time. But truth be told, in reality, it's actually kind of difficult, isn't it? Just a simple daily life of pursuing Christ, trusting Him, living for Him, trusting His promises, not being anxious, forsaking fleshly desires. It's hard. My flesh is weak. I'm not as spiritually strong as I would like to be. And you want to know the big secret? No one is. But what happens? Out of a survival instinct of wanting to fit into this mirage of a culture of spiritual triumphalism and outstanding godliness, what do you do? You adapt. You learn to put your best foot forward at all times as a Christian because it doesn't feel safe to be honest about your struggles. And you feel like you're the ugly duckling for not being so spiritually put together all the time. You learn to merely mimic true knowledge of the Bible and simply regurgitate the doctrinal statement of the church without really thinking through it for yourself because the pastor keeps saying, oh, here in this church, we're all about sound doctrine, sound doctrine, which in context is actually being used wrong, but that's a whole different sermon in and of itself. But we have biblical convictions unlike others. And you feel like, oh my goodness, i I got, I got to keep up with all this. And well, when you can be dogmatic about very fine points of theology, it makes you feel really spiritually excellent, doesn't it? But in the end, all you learn to do is just be dogmatic for the sake of being dogmatic. I've seen this a lot. That's why I always try to tell all of you, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to take time. God is unfathomable. There are things that took me years to grasp. It's okay to ask questions. Oh, in many of these churches, you can't ask questions. That's the unpardonable sin. And you learn to just act the way everyone else acts. And you learn to talk the way everyone else talks. In this very godly, spiritual way. Now, sometimes it goes so far where there's just this weird culture in a church where everyone just talks like, they say, go, hello, brethren. 
Is it well with your soul? Oh my goodness, that just drives me crazy. Why are you so weird? Can't you just be a normal human being? It's not a question of whether you're being holy or not. It's about whether you're being human or not. Can't you just say, hey, what's up, doc? I mean, even Bugs Bunny is more real and human than you are. But look, I can go all day listing various symptoms. But the point is this. Do you see how fake the congregation becomes in such an environment? How hard everyone has to try to put up a holy front, even with good intentions, because it's just their survival instincts kicking in. Because you, you genuinely love the Lord and you love His church, you just don't do it perfectly and unfailingly as is advertised. And you sincerely desire to be a member of Christ's body, but you've been conditioned to believe that the requirement to remain and, and thrive in this community is that you maintain this exceptional appearance of holiness. And so... What happens? You learn to keep your guard up. Because you fear that if anyone knew that you weren't as spiritually outstanding as you feel pressured to keep up the appearance of, and that you would be judged harshly. And this, my friends, it destroys the true life of the church. Slowly but surely, Because no one can be honest anymore. No one can be real. No one can be themselves. We're all just in a play. Just reading our script. Like a bunch of lifeless robots. You see, this kind of subtle hypocrisy kills the church slowly by sucking the soul out of the congregation. It is death by spiritual hemorrhaging because you're losing the lifeblood of joy and grace and freedom in the gospel. Listen, the same words of Jesus apply to this inconspicuous version of holy hypocrisy, if you will. Verses 2 and 3 are just as pertinent because what we need to constantly remember is this. God knows everything. He knows that none of us are strong. He knows how weak and frail and fragile our faith really is. He knows our daily struggles. He sees it all, how dark our our hearts still are, even as believers being sanctified by His Spirit. And yet, even so, despite what He sees, He still promises to be with us. Never to leave us, nor forsake us. And you can come to Him bringing your sin in honest confession, asking for forgiveness and restoration, and He will never refuse you, ever, because He is the Savior and sanctifier of sinners, who is not only able, but willing to touch and embrace the unclean. And hasn't Jesus demonstrated that for us? In being willing to become unclean as he made contact with the leprous man. 
And when you come to Him, He will always lavish with grace upon grace and cleanse you time and time again because Christ has taken on every uncleanness upon Himself. See, that is what makes the gospel so precious and beautiful and liberating that we don't have to put up a front with God. We can trust His grace that He clothes us in our nakedness, that He covers us in our shame because He has done so once for all through Jesus Christ, His Son, who for our sake, He hung naked on the cross, bearing the shame and scorn of our sin. There is no need to pretend to be holier than we really are before God because God does not relate to us on the basis of how holy and obedient we are in and of ourselves as though that were even possible. God relates to us on the basis of Himself, of His gracious self according to the inexplicable goodness of His sovereign grace in setting His love upon us before the foundation of the world, before we would ever choose Him, before we had ever done anything good or bad. He reveals that grace to us in Christ who died for us, not while we were such godly people, but while we were ungodly and dead in sin. And if that infinite love was was manifested on the cross, while you were still a rebellious orphan, lost in the darkness of sin, what makes you think that He would abandon you now, having adopted you as His child? What makes you think that your present weakness and struggles with sin would suddenly disqualify you from the grace that met you in your darkest hour in the first place? You see, our propensity to put our best foot forward before other people, it stems from our propensity to put our best foot forward before God. And we do that when we have lost sight of the gospel. But you see, the grace of God not only protects us from hypocrisy, it disarms us of it because the gospel reassures us the 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 fearful insecure little children that we are that it is safe to put down the fig leaves and entrust our naked selves to the one who clothes us with the spotless holiness and righteousness of another namely his son whom He sent to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, which is the honest truth of what we all are apart from Him. If you're here this morning and you have not turned to Jesus Christ by faith, come and find your refuge and safety in Him. Confess to God that you are a sinner because He knows everything already. You can't hide from Him But the good news is this. You can't hide from God. But you can hide in God. You can come to Him. And He will cover all of your unrighteousness and sin and shame. Because that is why Jesus suffered 
and die to take on the condemnation and punishment we all deserve as sinners. This is the gospel. It dispels any need for religious pretense. The grace of God is the only cure for all kinds of hypocrisy. And church, may this teach us something about what true holiness is and what a truly holy church looks like. The holiest church is not the one in which the congregation is filled with people who have little to no issues and no real struggles with sin. I'm sorry, but that doesn't exist on this side of eternity. But the holiest church is the congregation who know themselves to be not so spiritually strong, who are all so aware of their weaknesses, who are poor in spirit, and chiefly that they, more than anyone, believe the promises of the gospel and entrust themselves into the gracious heart of God. They cling to Christ each and every day for dear life. And what that produces is a very soft-hearted people who are filled with humility and gratitude. There's hardly a hint of judgmentalism to be found in such a congregation because everybody, each individual person is preoccupied looking into their own hearts and being constantly aware of how much grace God has shown them and is continuing to show them. And so when they see their brother or sister struggling in sin or in unbelief, rather than pouncing on them with rebuke and harsh correction, they immediately feel overwhelming compassion, fully understanding how difficult is the fight of faith because they know it all too well themselves. And they have a deep desire to reassure one another of the sweetness of the gospel, especially in the moments of weakness and failures, so that they too might be restored and lifted up by the grace of our Lord Jesus that really upholds all of us. You see, the grace of God produces the most wonderful atmosphere in the church in which as brothers and sisters we can feel safe to let down our guard and be real with each other. We're all struggling in one way or another, but God has given us each other that we might struggle together and encourage each other along the race of faith to keep running by the grace of God that enables us. And so church, may God protect us from this folly of hypocrisy. And may He help us to be a church that is immersed in the gospel of His never-failing, never-changing grace. Let's pray together. Our gracious and merciful Father, thank You that even through this backdrop of the dire warning of the leaven of the Pharisees, you have reminded us of the exceeding goodness of your grace. Lord, we ask that you would help us all to search our hearts as you search it by your Spirit and to humbly come before you, clinging to your grace, 
And as a result, experiencing richer portions of your love. As we are amazed that you would continue to show such grace and sustain weak-faced people like all of us. And Father, we thank you that you have, for your church, instituted the Lord's Supper, this sacrament, that by it you might remind us through these visible and tangible elements of the grace that is sufficient for us because Jesus Christ, our Savior, has paid it all. We thank you for giving us this regular reminder and we ask that you would set apart these ordinary elements to minister your grace to us and that by it we might be reassured of the kindness and love that is always abundant for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.